It's now on the public record. And I don't remember what I said. So. I don't think anyone understood what you said because you were speaking nonsensical German. Oh, that's that's worse, though. You can't. You, can't, you have to delete that. I'm not gonna. I know you're not. This is, that's probably gonna be the beginning of the episode. Probably. I hate you. Yep. Hi, gentle so. listener. Oh, we're just starting now, We're just huh? going, yeah. Well, Welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. It's a podcast, and I'm Michael, and this is Ethan. I pointed at him for all of you visual learners out there. Excellent work. Excellent and work. in this podcast, we talk about not Scotch. We talk about books. I guess jumping in like this is better than us asking each other if we're ready for like seven minutes. Right. Which that is our very usual Midwestern sort of, are you ready? <laughs> I know you've said it. I know you've said yes twice, but, but like, are you, you still like, feel like you're hiding something, right? Like, I'm, I'm digging so that I can get at your true emotions and your true feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. Uh, uh, so, Michael and Ethan, everyone with Scotch. Uh, I'm the host, Michael Lilienthal. This is my guest, Ethan. You Bartlett. did introduce and, us already. Yeah, I'm doing so it again. Twice. So I... we're gonna be talking about books. Yeah. On this podcast. Well, just one today. Just one. No, who am I kidding? We'll probably talk about a bunch of others also. We'll probably tie in a bunch of books, but officially we're talking about one. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, Ethan, do you want to know what scotch we're drinking? Yes. It's over here. Why do you think I came? I know. We've established already that the only reason we do this podcast (laughs) and travel to one another's houses is to get scotch. To get scotch. Yep. So. (laughs) Doesn't actually seem like that efficient of a system. No, it's really not. Like, I can just go to the liquor store (laughs) and just have scotch. (laughs) But here's our scotch for today. Uh, It is um, from the Queen of the Hebrides, single malt scotch whiskey, Islay Storm. And I'm trying to see if it says anywhere on here. I don't think it does. So. Oh, how old it is? No. Well, yeah, it doesn't say how old it is. Um, distilled, matured, and bottled in Scotland, the Highlands and Islands Scotch Whiskey Company Limited, Glasgow. Oh, interesting. Um, it gives tasting notes on the back. Do you want those? Uh. Or do you want to go in blind? I prefer to just taste for myself without right. someone else telling you don't me need how anybody. to do it. <laughs> you don't need no man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a director, anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look at those maybe later when we, uh, rate the scotch. Yeah. But, uh, would you like to know where I got this scotch? Yeah. Uh, I got it from Trader Joe's. Oh, interesting. It was one of their scotches. And I know some Trader Joe's single malts say Trader Joe's on them. Uh-huh. This one. Oh, so this is one of the classy ones. Is one of the classy ones that does not yeah. say Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, instead, it is an Islay. And it has a picture of a nice storm yeah. on it. Which does seem appropriate for because... today's reading material. Yeah, quite. So. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's beautiful. It's All right. Just it doesn't come in a box. So Well, that's, that's that's how Trader Joe's keeps those costs down. Right. Yeah, so there's just... I'm not looking at the Don't at look the at the tasting notes. notes. I, I haven't even looked at them. I just yeah. looked at... It said tasting notes. So. Yeah, well, that's... All right. Almost too many spoilers already. Should we pop it? Yeah. Oh. Just like prop night. <laughs> You were homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't point that out. All right. Now we've introduced the scotch. And once we clink our glasses and salute, then the rules of the podcast come into effect. Um, where's your wife to tell us what those rules are? Uh, hey, wife, appear. <laughs> Karen, what are the rules? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. 
And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Wow, the magic of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the rules. So those take effect as soon as we clink our glasses. So, Bahayim. Schlank. <laughs> St. John Mandel, I assume. I think she's it, American and not British. So is she not Canadian? Oh, maybe she's Canadian. Anyway, I know if the, if she were British, you'd say Sinjin and not right. St. John. And honestly, that's how I've been saying it in my mind, in my head canon <laughs> for this author's name. It's oh. Emily Sinjin Mandel. Well, I was about to correct but... you on a different pronunciation, but I didn't want to lose already. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Guess I sat on that egg a little too long. Well done. It, instead of hatching, it just poked me in the in the butt with its beak. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's part of hatching. This metaphor is getting away from. I think this metaphor us. was away. <laughs> okay. Um. So this book. Yeah. Station Eleven yeah. by Emily. Sinjin, Mandel. Sinjin, Mandel. Mandel. Yeah. Emily Sinjin, Sinjin, Saint John. John. Mandel, Mandel, Mandel. 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 <sighs> we're going to get into right, a lot of well, trouble with that. This book. Emily, if you're listening, we're sorry already. <laughs> we are. And in fairness. Look at her. She's looking at you in the back. Yeah, she you. is. She is. And so. she's clearly a thousand percent sharper than I am. And yep. also, in fairness, I think it took us like half of Ocean at the End of the Lane to apologize to Neil Gaiman. So. That's true. So For what it's worth, you're ahead. You're ahead of Neil Gaiman in, in that way. Yeah. Neil Gaiman, I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> Neil Gaiman, we're permanently sorry if you're listening. <laughs> Just, why? <laughs> okay. So, this book. We uh, had one chance with you, it. I know. We blew it. And we blew it. Yeah. Um, you brought this book. I did. And... I have a question. Yeah. About this book. Yeah. I'm going to challenge you here uh, to to begin our. Do you really think I come to this podcast to be challenged? Yes, I, I do. I think that is what. No, you I anticipate. come to this podcast to challenge you. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it's a... we can reciprocate. I mean, we I'll can, challenge you. We will. I'm the host this time, so you have to do what I say. I know. You are I know. my slave. And. I guess, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. My challenge to you, I want you to tell me, and I'll I'll answer this question also if you want me to. I don't. I want you to, okay. <laughs> I want you to tell me in one word what this book is about. In one word? One word. Give me one word to tell me what this book is about. The only reason I'm asking is because I've already thought of my one word. <laughs> well, so... I do kind of want to calibrate words. Okay. Wait. If we do a countdown, will you be able to say it at the same time that I say it? Sure. Okay. I want to do a countdown now. Okay. Because I would like to preface my answer, but also I don't want to preface my answer because then I feel like I'm prejudicing you. Okay. So we'll do the countdown and then I'll answer your challenge. All right. So countdown and we're both going to say our one word? Yes. Okay. At the same time? Yes. All right. So wait, are we doing three, two, one and then saying the word? No, we have to say zero. No, we're doing three, two, one and then Three, two, one word. word. Yes. Okay. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You're gonna you're gonna edit this part out, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're giving me too much work. <laughs> Alright. So three, two, one, and then the our one word of what this book is. Summary about. of this book, yes. Okay. Alright. Three, three, two, two one. one. Civilization. Okay. Different words. <laughs> they were. They were. Yours was way longer. That's okay. <laughs> he said accusingly. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Well, defend your answer. Well, you say death. 
So or the preface, preface it in a post yeah, face. The 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 post post prefacedest <laughs> was is that I uh have been a reading Hamlet recently. Ah. B reading Hamlet criticism recently. Ah. And C did just watch the Coen Brothers movie The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. It's it just dropped on Netflix. Like okay. I think it just went up on Netflix two days ago, and that was its. Like I think they're doing like a theatrical release, but it's also starting now. So like it's in theaters and on Netflix. And I watched it the day it came out um, because I had watched a trailer and a couple weeks ago and was mad that it didn't come out the day I watched the trailer. So I watched it immediately. Anyway, and basically the Battle of Buster Scruggs is. The Coen Brothers in the Old West doing Hamlet. Oh, um, all right. So, and I would explain that, but this is about Station Eleven and not not about the Coen Brothers or Hamlet yeah. actually, because like we should obviously be talking about King Lear. But anyway, <laughs> um, or the Tempest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so that said, um. A lot of, a lot of, I'm, the book I'm reading right now um, is G. Wilson Knight's book, uh, The Wheel of Fire, um, which came out in 1930, and it's considered one of the big, like, most influential um, Shakespeare analyses of the 20th century. Like, it influenced, he, him and A.C. Bradley were basically the two major works in that field in like the first half of the 20th century and are still influential today and Mm -hmm. um bradley talks about the major sequence of shakespeare's tragedies um sort of from hamlet up through like coriolanus and including like Mm. othello and macbeth and um you know all the all the big ones king lear Mm -hmm. um he talks about the the obsession in those plays being the death theme Mm -hmm. um and this idea that uh it's it's difficult to summarize and i'm honestly not sure i fully understand it yet and i'm only halfway through the book but my my summary right now is basically the idea that a lot of humanity's actions thoughts deeds um i guess actions and deeds are the same thing whatever (laughs) uh you know motives motives uh you know a lot of what we do think and say and even believe really only makes sense if we're never going to die um and that like Hmm. greatness in sort of worldly affairs almost has to be achieved on a presumption that we're never going to die even though like the fact that we're all going to die is arguably like the single most basic fact that all of humanity has in common sure so like a lot of shakespeare's tragic figures essentially try to bridge that gap and fail Hmm. um that's fascinating yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating line of of uh analysis right um and basically his his analysis of hamlet in a very bad nutshell is basically that all of the characters besides hamlet sort of live like there's no such thing as death and mm-hmm. hamlet sort of brings the idea of death into mm. their world um and that's sort of why they despise him but why hamlet right. is sort of such a sympathetic character sure um huh I so i really like that i'm gonna have to read this now yeah yeah <laughs> no it's it's a uh, you know up until now harold bloom was probably the most influential oh, sure. shakespeare commentator in my life I think Bradley, or Knight, rather, has uh, just shoved him right out of a moving airplane as, as far as that influence goes. Um, and I'm only halfway through the book. So. Right. Anyway. So, but how that relates to Station Eleven now, I'm going to play a good host. Yes. Very Rain very us good. back in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good effort. You get you get all the hosting points for that. And, Woo! Um, I'm winning. Give up now. Um, no. Because well, no one ac- actually wins. So, like... You made a Except. you made an attempt in the face of oblivion, and now oblivion will sweep you away, <sighs> like I just said. Boom. Oh, nice. So, um, th- thank you. <laughs> uh, arguably, 
uh, since you forced me to sum this up all in one word. Yep. Which is admittedly unfair. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's it's more doable with this novel than with a yeah. lot of others, which I, I mean as a compliment. Like, that could mm-hmm. sound demeaning, like, oh, this, you know, it's not very, it, there's not a lot of depth or whatever. And that's not what I mean. I mean that it's very sort of focused and, like, sharpened to a point that you can sort of do that. And, the, I mean, the fact that we came up with two completely different words when asked to do this implies mm-hmm. to me that it's, you know, very... Very uh... well. I- exactly, the fact that we could come up with two different words so readily, yeah, I think implies that there is discussion to be had just within that. Absolutely. But anyway, like that's that's again partly because of these completely outside influences that I'm bringing in, perhaps unfairly, mm. um, in a in at least a pedagogical or analytic sense, right. unfairly, um. Partly because of that, like, what jumps out at me in this book also is the idea that essentially this this is a book about, uh, you know, it's sort of an ensemble cast of characters and all of their different reactions to the life impulse as opposed to the death impulse and the mm. attempt to bridge the gap between the two mm-hmm. um, overlaid with the literal death of a civilization. Yeah. Um, the f- sort of, you know, and it's again a good Shakespearean uh, technique is the outer world reflecting the inner world. Um, and in mm-hmm. a very real sense, like these civilization to these characters was collapsing and the actual literal collapse of civilization almost just instead of being something that's new to them, it almost just punctuates it what the sentence of their of their lives that was already written in a in a sentence. Right. It just it brought to the fore what was already there underneath. Yeah, exactly. Um which is like part of the, the themes and I and I, I don't think our words are actually that different. You even had right. the phrase the death of a civilization. Right. Um, and my word being civilization. Yeah, and that was where what I wanted to do next was ask you to explain your word. Sure, and and I think the the relationship there is exactly that the death of the civilization, civilization, and that recognition that before the events we should let people read the book. Oh yeah. Um. All right, go read the book. Um. Yep. We've really all we've done so far is like give you some interesting things to look for mm-hmm. in it. Some interesting little tidbits. So yeah. now that your appetite is whetted. Go read that book. Could you maybe say that word a little bit grosser? Now that your appetite is whetted. Well, I did literally ask you to do that. You so did. I don't know why I'm so mad right now. <laughs> you uh, brought this on yourself. <laughs> I really you made did. this bed now lie in it. Uh, yeah, my So Ethan's going to lie in this bed while you read this book. lying in this bed for so long i know really our listeners should get better at reading yeah not as long as it as i had to lie in that other bed when you while i waited for you to read don quixote (laughs) no no bed lying length is that long it's true it's true um but that uh okay so i was talking about civilization and death of civilization and how there's this connection between those two words that we both came up with yes um that idea that civilization was already crumbling for all of the characters we meet yes um before it literally crumbles and just that theme of what's underneath what's behind the veil or behind the curtain um yeah the the idea of a veil or a facade being put up is very prevalent in this entire book Mm -hmm. characters are doing that to one another making a face uh for everyone to see Mm -hmm. uh and that theme is brought out right at the very beginning um because you see uh king lear being performed on stage we're in a stage play uh and then the action begins when someone from the audience goes on stage breaking that veil breaking that barrier between the performance and the reality and that continues because there's fake snow on stage that gets paralleled by real snow outside right and so just the idea of fiction and reality being blurred here and the the walls between them coming down and i think what i 
what I think what this book is attesting is that somewhere between that performance uh, and the reality behind it, and somewhere um, between um, things staying as they are and things moving and changing, somewhere mm. in the nexus of all of that is where civilization exists. It's almost in like a tension between yes. things as they actually are and sort of the the veil that we put mm -hmm. over them. And it almost sounds like, are you almost saying that like you have to have both things? Yes, I think so. And the, the, the struggle that the characters go through in this entire book is trying to reestablish some sort of civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are competing views of what that should look like. Right. But everyone is trying to reestablish civilization, and civilization is its own thing. There's a museum right. to civilization right. that's built here. And so civilization is something that everyone sees as valuable, something that needs to be preserved. Right. And it, to be a good postmodernist about it, I'd ask why. Why do we need civilization? And what the book, I think, answers is... Um, there's no real life without civilization because of right. that exact tension. It's it's kind of a reversal of this, you know, chicken versus the egg sort of uh -huh. thing here, uh -huh. that uh, civilization itself causes this tension between performance and reality and between sure. um, stagnation and movement, and life is there in that tension. Sure. Yeah, and that's, a, that's an interesting... Uh, um thought that does very much parallel you know again like this this podcast always threatens to turn into the shakespeare podcast yes even when it would not be completely textually and thematically appropriate <laughs> right and for this book it would so mm -hmm. what i'm saying is gentle listener settle in this is gonna be the shakespeare podcast <laughs> um in in a way that hopefully does justice to Emily Mandel's work, Mandel's, I apologize again if you're listening at all, um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, but also that I hope that she would all understand completely and that I, I'm going to go out on a limb and suspect she would in the sense of the entire book that she wrote. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, the, the idea of performance versus reality, right? And, yeah. um, just the constant questioning of that within Shakespeare's plays um, and, you know, Shakespeare being considered the poet of our civilization. <clears throat> um, you know, like if you were going to, especially if you were sort of taking religious texts out of the question, if you were going to preserve, if you had to preserve one text only from our civilization, Almost anyone with expertise in the matter would say the complete works of Shakespeare. Like, mm -hmm. almost it would be just sort of a, a shoe-in, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's constantly in Shakespeare's works. There's constant implications that, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the play is the reality, whereas, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the so-called reality sort of pales in comparison to the play. Mm -hmm. But also, like... The play itself often has um, literal reminders that it's just a play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Puck's, Puck's epilogue to Midsummer, yep. uh, Prospero's epilogue to The Tempest, mm -hmm. you know, all of them sort of just remind you, like, guys, this is just a play, but also I need your applause to get me out of purgatory. Right. But other than that, <laughs> it's just a play, which yep. in and of itself, A... Seems suspicious that you would need reminding there that you would remind an audience right. that didn't need reminding in some sense. Like, wouldn't they know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, if you if you think that's stupid, and your you know coworker who talks about the uh, or your nope not your coworker who talks about the characters on Gilmore Girls as if she just saw them the other day. Mm -hmm. um, which I definitely don't do, and someone else I'm not allowed to mention definitely doesn't do. Um, <laughs> that you know, like they're, they're, that's that's it's the same whatever function um, it is is creating both of those uh, realities, right? The the uh, fact that you need reminding that fictional characters are fictional 
seems to be more of a function of the human brain than like an exception to it. Yep. Right. Um, and so there's there's all that there's that whole tension just within um, Shakespeare's plays that are sort of at least one clear wellspring of of this text. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could almost say this text itself partakes of that tension. Oh, sure. Um, well, and even interestingly, you know, Shakespeare's plays, a lot of them have a play within them. Yes. And this book has plays within it. <laughs> yes. From the first page, yes. it has plays within it. And that continues. There are more. And so that, yeah. that layering, like, I think we tend to think of that layering as more solidifying the the facade of the play like it makes the play seem more real to have right. a layer of fiction within it right but it also itself does the opposite by calling attention to the fact hey you're watching a play within right. a play right so guess what you're watching a play and it also has a play in it <laughs> <laughs> right so um it it, it, it kind of does both it, yeah it pulls both ways yeah it it does <clears throat> and it um somehow seems to only serve the piece of art under discussion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's you, there's there's sort of that idea of intertextuality is the current academic fad phrase to call it, but whatever you want to call it, like um, the idea of fictive worlds existing within fictive worlds only yep. ultimately, even though it does call attention to the artifice, only seems to make a work of literature stronger if mm -hmm. the author knows what they're doing. Right. It. Um, Don Quixote had all had that, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of places with that. The just the fact that the books exist within the world of the book, mm -hmm. and you know, in part two of Don Quixote, we meet people who have read part one mm -hmm. and know Don Quixote because of that. And you know, um, you had a couple uh, really good remarks about that. In one of our Don Quixote episodes, did I? I don't yeah, remember. you basically basically talking about how you know the um, in part two it becomes more and more confused what's reality and what's oh, fiction yeah. mm -hmm. until you realize that the whole thing is a fiction. Yep, <laughs> that almost just makes it more confusing rather than less. Yeah, um, and you know one thing that another sort of parallel between Station Eleven and Don Quixote along these lines that I noticed is the small cast the smallness of the cast in comparison to the real world or even the world positive sure. within the story oh no like um oh what was it there there's some critic and i only read them incidentally who said i think the phrase they used was um i'm not gonna remember it now um something like literary quantum entanglement uh-huh. Where, uh -huh. like, and I, I ran across this when I read Kite Runner for the first time. Oh, okay. Where when you when you get the twist near the end, yeah. and you meet someone that they knew from childhood, it's almost unbelievable. Right. Because how could, thousands of miles and decades apart, how right. are they going to meet that person? Right. And that sort of quantum entanglement, however, is necessary to fiction. Absolutely. And you run into that in here. Right. And this book in... Not and this is not the only thing in Station Eleven, um, the only element that does this. But Station Eleven almost to me takes that trope and just like doubles down on it. It hard. really, like, really does. It's it's not you know oh this just happened. It's not oh this happened and I noticed it, but I needed it for mm -hmm. the story. Like it wouldn't have worked other. It's no, I'm taking this football and I'm couching it and i'm deliberately running the length of the field yes. with it um and it's fascinating because like a lot of what i've been reading or had been reading especially just before station 11 was of course don quixote because it no. takes 11 years to get through any reading of that <laughs> book um and then as i mentioned in the don quixote episodes some of kundera's criticism and mm -hmm. thomas pavel and both of them mention that especially in early novels you get this effect um don quixote is a prime example tom jones is another mm. example you know which is an early english uh picaresque novel it's sort of henry fielding was like i'm gonna write don quixote but british um <laughs> and you know in it it's 18 18 books long quote unquote mm. they're you know 50 page books but um in book one tom jones like gets exiled from his home 
and he spends the middle 16 books roaming like the length of England and then in book 18 he you know sort of comes full circle but there's only like 12 characters in Tom Jones sure and you know it's the same 12 characters that keep coming up and coming up in mm-hmm. different arrangements and in like surprising ways but it's these same freaking 12 characters and again same thing as we talked about a bunch in the Don Quixote episodes Don Quixote is that way where you have Really, out of all of England, you have the eight characters who have versions of the exact same story come to this inn or in, you know, part two, they wander all over Spain and, like, only manage to meet the same, like, eight to ten different people. Um, Which was one of Nabokov's big problems with that book. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fascinating, right? Because Lolita. Oh, I know. uh, (laughs) Oh, I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But... Yeah, so like, and this book does does the exact same thing yep. in that it just, you know, and again, it almost feels like, and this is not the only way you could arrive there, I'm not no. trying to, to um, psychoanalyze the author, but it does feel like she read some of that sort of criticism and oh, shook sure. it and made it a trope in her own book on purpose, as right. a trope, not as just an incidental thing. Um, well, and it strikes me, too, that the smallness of the cast like this is a little bit Shakespearean itself. Oh, yeah. Because in, a, like, the, the way a novel is structured, you could have as many characters as you want. It, it, right. Like, you have that freedom. You can do well, literally then, anything. But with a stage play, you're limited by space. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and just, and also just cast size, right. yep. um, especially when, like, in Shakespeare's day or in the post-apocalypse sections yep. of Station Eleven, you know, you're yep. you're a literal troop, and so your your plays have to somehow fit around the specific group of people you you're writing. You even have for. double casting yeah. in those sorts of situations very commonly, and you almost have that sort of thematically in this book, double casting, where you've yes, got you absolutely. know a, a kid who turns into a cult leader, and he's like right. double cast that way. Yeah, and, and you know you have. Yeah, like characters in one section that you don't realize are the same character sure, from another yeah. section. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I as I got into sort of the back half of the book, I did, I did and I felt a little slow to even take that long, but I started picking up that our, our uh, cult leader was definitely someone I knew already. Mm-hmm. And it just became a game with me to try to figure out which character it oh, was. Oh, yeah. No, it, um, it, it becomes pretty clear early on that that sort of trope is going to happen yes. all over the place, where you're going to meet someone, and then later you're going to meet them again. And that's the sort of thing that I often hate in fiction. Yeah. Because it gets it feels so gimmicky and mm-hmm. so sort of cheap so easily. But I didn't hate it in this book purely for the fact that she just owned it mm-hmm. so completely. Like, this was I, clearly part of the warp and weft yep. of the book rather than just sort of a gimmick to make her mm-hmm. writing job easier. I, I will brag a little bit. I figured out who the cult leader was by at least page 111. Uh, and you wrote it down earlier. Yep. To uh, have documentation. To have documentation. Uh, it's near the bottom of page 111. Um, Clark is talking to Arthur on the phone and the setting is a year before the George. Oh, not on the phone. They're talking in person. Um, they're in London, meeting for dinner in London a year before the Georgia flu. And I know, Clark said, I'm sorry. Arthur's third wife had recently served him with divorce papers and her predecessor had taken their son to Jerusalem. And right there, uh, I, I say, oh, the Holy Land, where prophets come from. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, and that's very, uh, yeah, very piquant, piquante, piquante, uh, mm. At some, point, at some point, I stopped talking about literary terms and started talking about salsa. So, yeah. um, but fortunately, we haven't. De gallo. We haven't banned salsa yet. Um, it's true. But anyway, uh, I did have an actual real thing to say, and you were talking about characters yeah. showing up later, which like comes with the author or the 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 author artist of the comic books. Yes, who we yes. just get the initials of. I figured that one out pretty. Quick. I, I I figured that one out like, almost immediately. Just because I, I don't want to do. I I don't think we need a long names with Michael segment here. Name. 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 Name with Michael. Right. 
Right. But it fits. Right. Because Station Eleven is literally the Tempest. Right. And it's written by Miranda. Right. Who's a character in the Tempest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um Yeah, the the and again, I think this was part of what we are talking about here yep. overall, but the naming is not subtle. Not even Not even and once again, you know, you there's there are ways for that to seem cheap and hackneyed, but in this, it's, it's it's just part of it's part of the world. And if if the almost if the naming were more subtle, it would seem cheaper in this. Right, in this I setting. I think by having such very blatant names, um, I think Miss Mandel is not treating her readers as stupid. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. not really trying to pull the wool over our eyes, which is part of right. my issue. I think with that sort of trope that comes up where you you know meet that same character yeah. later on like sometimes it's brought up as though the author thinks the reader is stupid and it's or like i'm going to trick you yeah. and you're not going to get it until i reveal it yeah. 100 pages later but she fully knows that you're going to figure some of this up yeah out she almost she almost wants you to yep. figure figure mm-hmm. it out um yeah yeah no and i think that's like a good litmus test for when these things feel cheap or or like cheating in some sense or um, mm-hmm. just sort of hackneyed is, is exactly what you said when the author if not does if, if they don't think the reader is stupid they definitely think they are cleverer than mm-hmm. the reader mm-hmm. um and uh yeah I, that's that's yeah part of what i what i don't get the sense of here at all i mm-hmm. think this is very much the author just just say you you get this right like you you know they it's it's almost more of a spur to question why this is um, right and and i Which, do think we have to like be careful about using the terms small and large sure in this sense because you know you talked about like the smallness of a of a theater cast but yeah if you notice like if you ever go to you know a professional level um well it doesn't even have to be professional level i don't know why i said that but if you ever just like just a production go to any production of a shakespeare play right yep um and say you're at at like a rep company where um they're also doing more modern plays right yeah. if you look at the cast lists shakespeare plays are always enormous in comparison to anything written more than say like a hundred years later and especially enormous compared to anything written in the 20th or 21st century Mm -hmm. um i guess i'm thinking of this because i went to a few productions at american players theater Mm -hmm. in wisconsin over the summer and they do you know rep stuff where they have like 10 or 11 plays over the course of a summer and you just get the same um uh program right Mm -hmm. for for every play and so just paging through the different cast lists it would be like you know, oh, here's this George Bernard Shaw play that maybe has like eight characters, and here's a more modern play that has five, and here's a very recent play that has two, and then it's like there are three or four Shakespeare plays. It's like there's fifteen characters. Yep. <laughs> um, Which, yeah, relative to other modern works, yes, it's huge. Yes, and again with Station Eleven, you know, the number of like viewpoint characters or characters who you follow through any sort of arc is pretty large compared to other novels especially for novels of this length yes like you know this is what a in the edition we have it's it's yeah 330 pages or so 333 Um, thank you um yeah but it's you know this is not a long novel for a cast this size but a cast the size is very small in comparison to the actual world right and even if you you know sort of um sort of assume a, whatever amount of population got killed off in in mm-hmm. the flu like even then i feel like the like the like whatever 10 10 or so people who mm-hmm. matter in the course of this book is still a infinitesimal number compared to even the number right. of survivors there would be right have you seen um the last man on earth uh, no, I've, okay. I know of it. So the the show is called The Last Man on Earth, right? Which you know, it, it, similar premise. There's some disease that destroyed ninety nine point nine percent of the world's population, and right. you meet this character who 
figures he's the last person alive because he has he doesn't meet anybody in the right. at the end of the second episode he meets a woman and they think they're the only two people alive and right. then a couple episodes later they meet another person right. and then they meet another person and it, the the cast kind of grows that way and it just kind of continues to grow through mm-hmm. it's a comedy and it's hilarious sure, sure. and then uh, the show was recently canceled but the last episode shows the this core group of like 12 characters meeting a colony of dozens if not hundreds uh-huh. of people uh-huh. and so you know small in comparison to the world right but also huge in comparison to the last man on earth right right um so that sort of comparison is interesting yeah when you think about that sort of dynamic that yeah the, the world is smaller in the world of this book right but also we're still meeting a still small the, group yeah the the uh <laughs> The set of connections seems unlikely, especially if you're going mm-hmm. on sort of a pure statistical basis. Right. But, and again, so like, I think that's very intentional, though. Oh, yes. Because I think that's part of what she's what she's doing with the story, and that's a very vague thing that could apply to literally anything any yep. author is doing with any story. Um, and I have an answer to this question in my mind, so I want to ask you first. Oh, goodness. What are You're you... challenging me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tables have turned. See, the shoe is on the other foot. Uncomfortable and smelly, is Ugh, it not? Gross. What you? What do you do? That was an Everybody Loves Raymond reference. Yeah, I know. Okay. I'm well. just telling everyone how gross your feet are. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> you challenged me first. I don't know. I don't know. That felt relevant, and then as I was saying it, I was like, this isn't a good comeback. <laughs> so I decided to talk about it some more instead of moving on. That works. Um, so here's the yeah. question: Everything we just talked about, small smallness of cast, unlikely lack of likelihood of them meeting up. Mm. Why? We've pretty firmly established that that's in there and that it seems completely intentional. Sure, but why? Um, I think it gets back to my one-word summary of this book, Civilization. And I think for an individual, civilization is not as big as that person thinks it is. For an individual person, civilization is just a handful of people they know. Um, This is something that in my personal life I've reflected on a a fair amount, where I think I'm involved with the lives of so many people on such a consistent basis, but then when I actually take time to schedule out who I interact with on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. it is a lot lower of a number. Than I think it is, and that's go ahead. And I think that's the perspective that's coming through. I think I think it's it's demonstrating that what we think is necessary, or what these characters think is necessary for civilization, is actually a lot bigger than what's actually necessary. Huh. So almost that that idea that like, it, especially in the age of like the internet and yep. hyperconnectivity and. Um, the ability to keep up with like news on a on a global per- global mm-hmm. scale um, that people get so overwhelmed and feel so small and yep. ineffective. It is it so is it that like that's not necessarily true? Yes, that... um, absolutely. And, and this you know kind of gets into our, our next book that we'll be discussing. Mm-hmm. Which if I were to put one word to that preview, it's perspective. Uh-huh. Um, and. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> And that's that's what's what's coming through in this is is people are encountering different perspectives, mm-hmm. and just, I'm just thinking about meeting cultists and mm-hmm. and uh-huh. chatting with cult- like how can you believe this crazy thing, this right. absolutely off the wall thing? And from your perspective, it is absolutely all the wall off the wall. But right. no one thinks they're crazy, right? right? <laughs> Everyone has an internal logic. Even crazy people right. have an internal logic, right? And it's just a matter of that perspective there. It still could be a wrong logic, but it's a different perspective sure. to that logic. And, and um, that the, part of that is the perspective on your own life. And I think, um, you know, some of the people within this, this troupe, the symphony, the traveling symphony, um, uh, who are kind of the main characters mm-hmm. overall, uh, they, they recognize that they are kind of limited here and it, it's interesting too just to see the generational perspective yeah where the people who were born after the great the the fall i think is what they call it right uh, the fall of civilization with the flu and everything um they don't know any different right and so their perspective is very different that right, this right. is this is what the world is whereas those who experienced the world before think the world should be a lot bigger yeah 
and it's not. And it's it, it, that that tension of it, it, I think it comes down to what is necessary, and each individual person in this book would answer that differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I mean I think that's part of like not only the individual perspectives but the group perspective is that mm. civilization is not necessarily a group of people agreeing on everything or even most things. Right. Um, and that, that it's, it's almost that you could, you could argue that it's sort of the ability to construct an arena in which different versions of what is necessary can sort of compete without yep. causing harm or pain or destruction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again with with it's, the it, civilization is tension ultimately yeah, is yeah. what that is. But it's 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 literal tension in in the sense of a thing being held between two poles, yeah. mm-hmm. as opposed to going too far one way or, or or the other. Where if you get too far in one direction on on this whole tension of uh, um, you know ideas in competition but not destruction, you know if you if you go too far in rejecting that notion, you get the cultists and the idea yep. that this one in fact one person not even one actual perspective but one person's decisions mm-hmm. and perspectives um that that's the ultimate reality mm-hmm. and if you go you know too far the other way um essentially you stop protecting anyone from anything and you mm-hmm. enable people like that to yep. sort of run amok yeah so it's like where's the where's the uh middle ground right there in a, in right. a sense I do want to answer yeah. my question. Oh yeah, please do. To you, because my and I, this is why I asked you first because like your answer was completely different, and I like it a lot. And I don't think mine is contradictory necessarily. Um, but intention. Could, what? But intention. <laughs> I hate you, and, <laughs> and also yes. Um, but so why the small cast? Why the the uh, the mm-hmm. smallness of the cast and this gets into to does it does bridge into something that i don't know like we could spend the rest of this episode talking about all by itself so mm. this may be um more in the form of a bookmark for later maybe not i don't know maybe yeah. it's maybe it's a much smaller topic than i think ah. Ah, uh but to me the the idea of the the smallness of the cast and the the um you know, almost uh, circumscription of mm-hmm. the, the world of this book. Um, the Ouroboros nature yeah. of the cast yes. in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh, a lot of what that gets at to me is, like, I, I guess I approach it from this pr- perspective of, like, why would the writer double down on doing mm-hmm. this, um, doing the sort of character carrying out this literary trope uh i guess and to me it involves the whole theme that is throughout the book and in many and various other ways than this one as well but it's that theme of chance versus destiny Hmm. um the the idea that again is is you know littered throughout this book in many ways Mm -hmm. including like actual out loud debates and dialogue that Mm -hmm. some of the characters have is the idea of you know, it's it's almost the author daring us to call her out. Mm-hmm. I feel like in you know daring us to say, "Well, no, this would never happen. This is not at all likely." And you know, it's it's a dare resting on the the bedrock of the fact that unlikely things do happen. Yeah, and you know, uh, things that at least seem like destiny or seem too too chance like to just have happened mm-hmm. um they do happened and they do happened yes that's they that's do happened and like how do you explain you that? heard Martin? it here first everyone <laughs> the things Ethan Bartlett, the things they, they do, do happen happened. <laughs> um require... new tagline for our show <laughs> i want to i want to get t-shirts printed things they i was do gonna say happened. you need to make sure that goes on my gravestone but yes uh i like the t-shirts idea Anyway, well, and it, um, it, it, that's even explicitly stated. Yeah, this like Elizabeth um, with her son, who becomes the cult leader. Her tagline, her her slogan is "Everything happens for a reason." Yes, which is pseudo religious nonsense, but like, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is it is one one pole of attention that yep. exists within this novel, and, um, and and in an ironic way, the author is saying that's true. Well, see, and that's that's sort of the que- I think that's definitely definitely the question the author is raising. Okay. But it's in a again a very Shakespearean way. I think it's almost perfectly ambiguous within the text of the book. Mm, sure. I think you could make an extremely valid argument that that's what the author is saying. I think you could make an extremely valid one that it's not that it's the opposite because um, the the foil to uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth is the other name I can't remember. Um, Miranda. No, the uh, curator. Kirsten. Oh, the curator of the museum. Um, Charles? Yeah. Clark. Clark, Clark, yeah. Um, because Clark's whole sort of thing is just to notice all of the chances, to notice that he got on the one flight that didn't oh, have the sure. flu on it and into the one Air Force yeah. that didn't have the flu on it. Um, and his reaction is almost... Or you could argue that he's a foil for the prophet as well. Yeah. Um, but, though, similar similar uh well interestingly things. both leaders one self-elected yes. and the other not the other sort of the one complete opposite of polygamist one celibate yeah you know um, <laughs> yeah very much so and but so his his you know that you have the one pole of everything happens for a reason um and then you have the other pole of like no he he uh clark notices the chance that mm-hmm. all the chances and, well, that have even, led him here. You know, and he, he doesn't... The curator of the museum, it, the museum itself happened by accident. Yeah, exactly. But, like, to Clark, this is just what happens. Yeah. He doesn't mm-hmm. feel the need to put some kind of meaning mm-hmm. onto it. Um, Interesting. And the, the fact that you say, you said pseudo-religious nonsense in the... in reply to the whole everything happens for a reason. Yep. Um, that's interesting to me because it almost... Because, you know, the... The religious trappings and the religious language centers around the prophet. Yes. Um, but, and I don't know if this is something I'm getting out of the text or out of my own thoughts and opinions, but um, I don't think the prophet is a religious figure. Sure. Um, I think that's sort of a sort of a red herring. Yep. Um, oh, mm, mm, and yep. I think I, 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 Clark, have, I have something to go off of that. Go ahead. Clark, in almost his acceptance of things as they are and his sort of nonviolence and his, you know, um, uh, sort of living in the present moment is and almost... Literally building a temple? Yes. Is almost a much more classically religious figure yes. than the prophet is. Yes. And I agree 100%. Do you want to know how the text of the book proves that the prophet being a religious figure is a red herring? Yes. Uh, what is the prophet's symbol? I feel like I'm failing the, like... It was described several times, and I know. it annoyed me each time the way it was described, because I was like, just call it what it is, but then you find out, oh, that's not what it is. I... And even still, I was a little bit annoyed, but... I, no, I just feel like I'm failing the, like, English, high school English comprehension test oh, on this sure. book. Because I can't remember... Like, I, I can picture a page. the first scene... In which it appears when the traveling symphony goes through the one town. Right, and they perform for them, and then, um, I don't know, I I don't think I'm going to find it, but I remember exactly how it was described. It was described as a lowercase t with an extra line near the bottom. Yes. What is that? Like, you picture that, and it's revealed eventually, it tells you what it is a picture of, or Kirsten assumes and tells you what it's a picture of, but... Yeah. Oh, What's yeah. a lowercase t with a line near the bottom of it? I mean, it's an airplane. Well, that's eventually what it's what revealed what, to be. Yep. Yeah. But um, before that, I think I even drew what I thought it was supposed to look like in the margin because I had a very clear picture of I mean, what that was other... supposed to be. Because a lowercase t, in, in, a, in the context of a religious symbol, what's a lowercase t? I mean, it's a cross. A cross, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, just call it a cross. Like, these people know what a cross is. They're right. familiar with Christianity. And obviously right, right. this prophet is uh, presenting a corrupted form of Christianity. Um, but uh, they, the author repeatedly and the characters repeatedly did not picture it as a cross. And I was very clearly depicting, even with the, lower, the, the little line near the bottom, Yeah, I, I was very clearly depic- uh, picturing that as a, a Ukrainian cross. Yeah, it, it uh, almost, 
um, I know there's a different term term for it, but to me it kept reminding me of the Joan of Arc cross. Yeah, sure. Which has mm-hmm. an extra line near the top, which sure. is different, but like, it, yep. was, it was like roughly along the same lines to me. And the the Ukrainian cross has a slanted line at the bottom. Yes, yes, that's a much um, better. That uh, was that's exactly what, what I was pictured. trying to think of. Sure, um, but like I, I was thinking of that the whole time, and I'm like, just call it a freaking cross we know what it is i was a little bit annoyed with the author and the characters for not just making that leap um and then even still when it was revealed oh no it's a it's an airplane right um even still okay but you're describing it as a lowercase t it still looks cross-like just say cross-like yeah but i think she was very deliberate in not saying cross-like because he's not a religious figure he wants Uh, to look like a religious figure but he's not yeah 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 no i love that that's awesome that's yeah so so you're in a sense here, and I don't think it's in a legitimate sense, but in a sense, you're arguing from silence, from the specific lack of cross-like language to depict it, this. I don't think it's even silence. It's like they they brought up a cross and Almost didn't call it. It, it yeah. dismissed it as not a cross. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, like I say, I don't think it's the actual fallacy of arguing from oh, silence, sure. but that's like, it's, it's the argument about mm-hmm. the silence of the text yeah. on a... It's like the thing you were annoyed by was actually the thing that was being done deliberately. Exactly. Exactly. Which, you know, I think is just, if I, if I want to give anyone advice, if they're getting annoyed by a book, say, what if that's the point? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the better the book is, the more likely that that is the case. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you started to say we were drawing near the end of the episode. And I think this kind of ties in with some of the things we're talking about here. Yes. Um, but another thing, something else that annoyed me, um, <laughs> but also kind of didn't. Um, <laughs> the theme of this episode. Right. Um, the inside cover of our edition has four little pictures stacked on top of each other. Um, butterflies or moths lit by some uh, offstage light. Mm-hmm. Um, a teacup. Uh, then some lights in what looks like a wintry sort of setting, uh, and then oranges mm-hmm. uh, on a blue cloth. And the script up at the top by the first picture is, what would you miss? Right. And so in the context of civilization falling apart, right. things are crumbling, what would you miss? Um, initially, when I saw that, I think I had a question related to this earlier on. I'm not sure if I have a question anymore. I'm just going to talk, and if a question comes to me, I'll say it. Um, but as I'm reading this book, that what, what's there on the inside cover never came up. Uh huh. Like occasionally a character would regret something, but it would always be shunted to the side and they'd sure. move on and live in the now. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so this, this question of what would you miss didn't strike me as apropos. Right. It seems like the publisher was being dumb uh-huh. and that's what annoyed me. I was like, right. you're a stupid publisher. Why are you putting right. this on this book? It's not... It doesn't fit. Right. Go away. But by the end of the book, when I finished it, I looked at that again and I thought, no, that's exactly what was going through every character's mind at every second of every day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They were always missing something. Right. Which is driving to that idea of um, civilization in the book, that they're yeah. always looking for something. And, you know, the, the butterfly, I'm not sure what all of these th- things symbolize, but like the, the teacup and the oranges, being able to have access to those sorts right. of things. Right, right regularly i mean that is talked about take for granted you know yeah the idea that people are like things things that it before the fall of civilization would have been just like tea that would have been just you know you could go down to any corner grocery store in any town you had it within 10 minutes and you could at least get you know a basic version of it at the very least you know you couldn't any longer take that for granted you would you would that would only obtain in parts of the world that like still grew tea plants right right and but like so that that idea that the the things of the old world were being longed after right and what ultimately that all culminates in is civilization everyone was longing for some sort of civilization right um which the the superscription of the book this quote from I'm going to butcher this name, Zeslaw Milos. 
Um, to as good as I would do. Poem, I think. The bright side of the planet moves toward darkness, and the cities are falling asleep each in its hour. And for me, now as then, it is too much. There is too much world. Uh-huh. Which is um, an impulse in the opposite direction. Right. Um, that, you know, civilization... It, it's the, the Dwight Schrute quote, we need a new plague. Right. Um, and then, you know, this book gives you a plague, but everyone regrets it. Everyone right. is looking for... And I think that's that's another thing we could talk about for a f- solid half an hour. Absolutely. If we wanted to, but... But we're at time here. Um, so let's, let's pause our discussion on this book after all of the things that we've talked about. And all the things that we've talked about talking about. Yep, yep. And we'll pick up our discussion on Station Eleven by Emily St. John Sinjin Mandel Mandel Mandel. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, We've in two in weeks. Butchering her name at least twice out of that. We got Emily okay. right. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty sure. sure. <laughs> um uh so we'll and we'll give our ratings on the book uh next time as well in two weeks uh and then we'll um get into talking about everything else excellent summary there we go yeah i think i touched all of our bases so uh certainly touched my base whoa so give us your feedback on station 11 uh or anything else uh you can meet us in the top contact section of the tapestry radio website tapestryradio.org Uh, If you go to that contact section, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, and we'll know what you're talking about, and we'll respond to that. You can also find us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. I I am on Twitter, at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Woo! Uh, You can also find us on Facebook, in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. It's a closed group, but if you request to join, we will let you in, unless you are a cult leader. Yep. No cult leaders. No cult leaders. Except for us, obviously. Except for us, obviously. Yes. We are the only cults allowed. Yep. Good work. Good work. Okay. Thank you. Um, also, we'll, we'll do your homework if you want us to. Uh, no, we're not going to do it well. Uh, and no, we don't condone plagiarism. But if you go to our website, go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast and fill out the homework submission form at the top. Uh, we'll do our best to do it and make it fun uh, for the podcast. Don't turn it into your teacher because, number one, that's plagiarism, and number two, you'll get an F. Teachers don't grade on fun. Nope. <laughs> um, if you like our podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the audio drama uh, backstage podcast. Uh, the Here's Johnny podcast, which is the horror review. They talk about movies and video games in the horror genre. Um, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. Uh, also, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, we don't pay to advertise, so that's really how other people find out about the podcast besides word of mouth. So if you also like the podcast, just tell someone else to listen to us. Yeah. And Take it from your mouth into their mouth. Yep, like CPR. That's how word of mouth works. Breathe, breathe the breath breathe of the breath of our podcast, our podcast into the lungs of your neighbor, especially if they're choking. Yep, <laughs> exactly. If they're choking, don't call nine one one. Give them our podcast. Yes. <laughs> oh man, I feel like we're gonna end up in prison for that. <laughs> Uh, uh, that said, read my webcomic, Pinporter Girl Detective. You can get to it by searching that or going to pinporterdetective.com. Uh, it is a noir fairy tale detective comic starring a 12 year old schoolgirl who de- defends her, fa- who protects her place of living from fairies and other evils. <laughs> it's good. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we want to. Okay, bye-bye. German. Was? Du bist ein Sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs>
Du bist ein Kartoffelkopf. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.